This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. Have you ever had friends, married couples, who love each other but constantly bicker? I know I have a couple of friends who fit that bill exactly. Well, tonight we feature a program that highlights this special relationship. Our first show is The Bickersons, starred Don Amici and band singer Francis Langford. John and Blanche were the battling Bickersons, a comedy with a one-joke premise but an infinite number of clever variations. Band singer and radio actor Don Amici handled with brilliant timing author Philip Rapp's genuinely acerbic scripts. The contentious couple first appeared as a recurring skit on the Chase and Sanborn Hour back in 1946. Don Amici had a wonderful career. After playing in college shows Stock and Vaudeville, he became a major radio star in the early 30s, which led to an offer of a movie contract from 20th Century Fox back in 1935. Now, as a handsome debonair leading man in 40 films over the next 14 years, he was a popular star in comedies, dramas, and musicals. Returning to film work in his later years, Amici won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for his performance in Cocoon in 1985. Don Amici was married to his wife, Honor, for 54 years, and they had six children. An immense number of later subsequent situation comedy shows, from The Honeymooners to Married with Children, owe a great debt to John and Blanche's nightly battles. Here they are in the program that's entitled, Blanche Learns to Drive. From Hollywood, it's dream time. Ladies and gentlemen, the makers of Dream Shampoo are pleased to present the 11th in a series of new programs written by Phil Rapp, produced by Carlton Alsop, and starring Don Amici... Blanche, why don't you let me sleep, huh? Danny Thomas and Francis Langford, who sings... Somebody loves me, I wonder who... I wonder who he can be Somebody loves me I wish I knew Who can he be Worries me For every boy who passes me I shout, hey, maybe You were meant to be my loving baby Somebody loves me Who 
Everybody loves me. I wish I knew. Who can it be? Where is me? For every boy has to me, I shout, hey, maybe. You were meant to be my loving baby. your host for the evening, Don Amici. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, good evening. I'd like to make mention of the fact that we've received a great many letters from listeners, most of which were very encouraging. However, there is one letter that calls for an answer from Danny Thomas. Call and I shall answer, Don. Hello, Danny. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. What's the gist of the note, Don? Well, it's just this. Mm. The writer, a lady of middle age, I should guess, suggests that you sing a serious song now and then. Well, her suggestions may be well meant, Don, but serious songs are for serious singers. No question about it. A man has to be trained in the art of delivering a ballad. No question about it. And I'm a comedian. (laughs) I said I'm a comedian. Seems to be a question about it. No, no, not in my mind, Danny. But this lady has an idea that you shouldn't be facetious all the time. She thinks jokes are cheap. She does, huh? Uh-huh. Wait till she has to buy a few. <laughs> At any rate, the letter is very complimentary, and she goes so far as to compare you with Al Jolson, possibly the greatest entertainer of all time. No question about that. She wants to know why you don't sing the kind of songs he did. Well, he just don't write tunes like that today. Besides, Jolson had a wonderful gimmick. Gimmick? Weenie. Squeeze. That's a songwriter's jargon for trick. Oh, look. He sang about his mother, his kid, sunny boy, and his home in Alabama all in one season. That's pretty powerful stuff, kid. That's quite a gimmick. I mean, what have we got to sing about? You know, we can't sing about mother. We'd be called corny. After all, you got to remember, this is the atomic age. Oh, we're a sharp, brilliant people. I mean, we're so much more brilliant than our forebears, we now know how to destroy ourselves 50 times as quickly. Yeah, yeah, you have a point, Danny. So what can we sing about and be up to date? Schizophrenia? (laughs) (laughs) Or or maybe kleptomania. Can you imagine singing a song called A Pretty Kleptomaniac is Like a Schizophrenia but the malady lingers on? (laughs) I never heard of that one. Or maybe you'd like me to sing about that new medical discovery, sulfahiathiaparapensinilamide. <laughs> what a medicine that is, brother. Great, huh? Great. They haven't found a disease for it yet. <laughs> <laughs> but, but there is one subject that is abreast of the times and still has a great depth. Archaeology. Or is it archaeology? Well, I wouldn't know. Are you qualified to sing about the study of lost races? Haven't had a winner all season. <laughs> but Don, Don, would it shock you if I told you I took a special course in archaeology at Cairo Prep? No. Yes, sir. I'm a graduate archaeologist. Or is it Archie? <laughs> Why don't you call Duffy's Tavern? I'll do that. 
Now, as soon as I received my diploma, the entire graduating class was sent to the Egyptian desert to search for relics. Hmm. The second day out, I unearthed a priceless old vase. Or is it vase? Either is correct. Or is it either? <laughs> well, the third day while I was snooping, that's right, snooping, around the pyramids, I found an unopened crypt. A crypt? Crypt. It was full of ossified sand crabs. What did you do? I crept into the crypt, cribbed a crab, and crept out of the crypt again. I'm glad you made it. Me too. I, uh, I pushed on another ten miles and bagged the biggest trophy of the whole expedition. I discovered the remains of the great Prince Tut. No. Yes. <laughs> he weighed 300 pounds in his sandals and toga. Oh, say, that's a big mummy. Oh, you might say he was the daddy of all mummies. <laughs> there he was, shrouded in his wrappings and covered from head to foot with precious gems, lying inside this weird Egyptian tomb. Sphinx? A little. But what can you expect? I mean, what can you expect from a man who's been dead for 3,000 years? Well, I brought Tatat back to this country and I never let that mummy out of my sight. Loved him, huh? Oh, yeah. We finally found happiness and success doing a comedy program on an obscure radio station. Oh, now, wait a minute. Wait a minute, Danny. Don't tell me you were on the air together. Oh, certainly. We were known as Fibber McGowell and Mommy. <laughs> we had a great program. There was a stooge named Red Skeleton. Skeleton. And the, on- the announcer was H.D. Corpsenborn. <laughs> it was a ghost-to-ghost hookup. Sounds pretty gruesome. Well, we were broadcasting from Death Valley. As a matter of fact, I'm glad that's all over with now. <laughs> Tut-Tut was very happy until another station went into competition with us and put on a program called Zombies for a Day. You know the show well. Oh, you know it? Oh, yes. You've heard it? Mm-hmm. That's great. I haven't. We lost, we lost all of our listeners, and Tut-Tut couldn't stand the disgrace of the failure, so he, he ran away. Oh. Oh, you poor kid. You lost your mummy. Yeah. <laughs> I traveled the whole world over in search of Tut-Tut. Egypt, Syria, India. I even went to North Africa on a wild goose chase. All I found was a wild goose. No Tut-Tut. Tired, hungry, and worn, searching, ever seeking, I plotted across Africa, struggling through the elephant's graveyard. Oh, now, Danny, there isn't really such a thing, is there? Oh, yes, there is, Don. It's legend. An elephant will travel for thousands of miles over rugged terrain, through swamps and the thick, heavy underbrush of the jungle to get to the place where he's going to die. And he always dies there. It's the trip that kills him. <laughs> Believe me, I know. Well, tell me, did you ever find Tut-Tut? Yes, Don, I finally came across his hiding place, but I just didn't have the heart to dig him up again. Well, why not? Well, I knew he had finally found true happiness because I saw a large tomb and a middle-sized tomb and a little tomblet. <laughs> and not wishing to cause a tumult over the tomb, I decided to go away. Leaving Tut-Tut in his happy married life. And so, Don, I want to sing a song that's near and dear to my heart. And this shall be my answer to the lady who can't forget Al Jolson. A caterpillar is a thriller to a caterpillar. The flowers and the bees are very chummy. A cricket has a thicket where he serenades a cricket. But a man's best friend is his mummy. <laughs> a beaver can increase the fever of another beaver. 
A puppet dreams about a wooden dummy. A gopher always has a gopher that he seems to go for. But a man's best friend is his mummy. Why, in most of my friendships with others, I know there have been many flaws. Oh, but with Tut-Tut and me, though we weren't brothers, he was just like my own flesh and gauze. Because a white fish is the right fish to delight another white fish. A little piggy loves his little tummy. An ermine will determine to get wolfish with an ermine. La-da-da-da-da. Thank you. But a man's best friend knitted mummy. Come oh, my best friend and I are say not divided. No, stay. Down deep in my heart, I've decided. To make every day a mummy's day. <coughs> a turtle who's a flirtle find excitement with a turtle. A little lamb adores his honey lammy. A sea bass who's a he bass loves a sea bass who's a she bass. <laughs> La da 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 da. Now I don't intend to offend the mammy down in Alabama, but a man's best friend right to the end is his mummy. Sorry, Jolson, not his mammy. Ladies and gentlemen, during a recent overseas tour, my wife, Rosemary, sent me a little idea for a song that we thought was very nice. And just recently, with the help of Jerry Seelan, we finished it. And tonight, for the first time anywhere, Francis Langford is going to sing it with a special arrangement by Carmen Dragon. The song is Just Before I Sleep. Thanks, Francis. <laughs> It's you, it's you. 
Bickerson with Danny Thomas as Brother Amos in The Honeymoon is Over. The Bickersons have retired. Mrs. Bickerson lies rigid but awake in the darkness as poor husband John, victim of an obscure type of insomnia that prevents other people from sleeping, exhibits the telltale symptoms of his dread affliction. Listen. <laughs> It may be funny to him, but it's not to me. John! John! Cut it out! Cut it out, Blanche. I lose my mind if you don't stop that giggling. What's the matter with you? What's the matter, Blanche? You sound like a tickled schoolgirl. What are you dreaming of? Tickling schoolgirls. John! What? What? What'd you say, Blanche? I simply won't stand it another night. Living in this house is becoming unbearable. Let's move. John, I swear I'm at my wit's end. How long do you think a person can go without sleep? I've been doing it for five years. John Bickerson, we've been married for five years. Amazing coincidence. Good night. Don't you good night me, you, you big sleeping pill. Why don't you have some consideration for me? Well, what do you want me to do, Blanche? When you were sick last year, did I say that? Didn't I sit up all hours of the night nursing you? Didn't I? Yes, you did. And what was my reward? I got sicker. <laughs> sure, you can afford to be sarcastic now. You feel fine. I want to sleep. It's two o'clock, Blanche. You don't remember how I catered to you every minute. When the doctor said not to let you have anything cold, didn't I give you all the ice water you wanted? You sure did. Almost killed me. That's gratitude. Well, I didn't expect anything else from you. You don't love me, do you, John? Oh, of course I do. Just because I don't say it every five minutes doesn't mean that I don't love you. Tell the truth, John. If if anything happened to me, would you marry again? Never, never again. <laughs> well, you don't have to sound so vehement. Well, if I said it any softer, you'd say I didn't sound convincing. I don't know, Blanche. I just wish you'd let me sleep. I keep thinking how nice it was before we were married. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
You were so different then. You used to plead with me for a little kiss. Now you don't even think of it. Why? A mouse in a trap loses his taste for cheese. <laughs> Very funny. Oh, you're so funny, John Bickerson. Well, I'm tired, and I have to get up early tomorrow. You just won't understand, will you? There are none so blind as those who will not see. Yeah. The one time I expected you to break down and offer me comfort, and, and you fail me. What? It's all right. I'll, I'll struggle through it alone. It won't be long, and when the time arrives, I, I don't even want to see you near me. What are you talking about? I'll go to the hospital by myself. You can sleep right through it. Blanche. Blanche, are, are you... Are you... Hasn't Dr. Marvin told you, John? Nobody told me. What? 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 What is it? I'm going to have my tonsils out. <laughs> your tonsils? What do you need to have your tonsils out for? You never have sore throats. Your tonsils never bothered you before. You never even knew you had tonsils. Dr. Marvin said it would help my disposition. Have them out, by all means. <laughs> I don't think I will, after all. Okay, don't. Good night. The only reason I was going to do it is because I thought I'd get a good night's sleep. Okay, do it. Why should I suffer through an operation? You're the one who keeps me awake. Why don't you do it? Do what? Have your tonsils out. <laughs> okay, I'll have them out next week. You say it, but you won't do it. Have them out now. <laughs> what? Go on, get up and call Dr. Marvin. Let him pull your tonsils out. Blanche, are you insane? It's half past two in the morning. The hospital stays open all night. Go on, let him pull your tonsils out. I haven't got any tonsils. I had them out when I was nine. Well, you need some new ones by now. Let him put some in. <laughs> oh, this is awful. You're deliberately trying to keep me awake. You know I have to get up early and go to work. Oh, don't make your job sound so important. You take a day off, nothing will happen. No, nothing will happen except I lose a day's pay. I need all the money I can get. I've got to make a payment on the car tomorrow. Where will you get that? I've got it. There's $84 locked in the desk drawer. 60 84 I looked yesterday. You didn't look today. <laughs> There's only 60 What happened to the other $24? Don't look at me, John. Blanche, there are only two people who have a key to that drawer. You and I, and there's $24 missing. Well, we'll each put back $12 and say no more about it. <laughs> How do you like that? Blanche, what did you do with that $24? I spent it. I bought some perfume. Perfume? $24 worth? How could you carry that much? <laughs> Don't be silly. It was only a half-ounce bottle, and I got it wholesale. It's the newest thing. Very daring. It's called Perhaps. Perhaps. For $24, they should give you positively. <laughs> well, I can't understand. I can't understand why you throw my money away on junk like that. It isn't junk, and you like it. How do you know? Because it's the same kind Gloria Gooseby uses. I hate Gloria Gooseby. Well, you're always sniffing around her. <laughs> now, don't you start with that woman. You're the one who started it. I'd like to spend one night in this bedroom without Gloria Gooseby. Just one night. <laughs> she just douses herself with that perfume. That's how she catches all the men, the hussy. She's not a hussy and she doesn't need perfume to catch me. I mean, I, mean, I can't stand the sight of Gloria Gooseby. But you like the way she smells. I hate the way she smells. I don't see how Leo can live with him. I wish they both dropped dead. Now, either let me go to sleep or I won't go to work in the morning. Don't go to work. See if I care. You'd have lost the day's pay anyway if I hadn't torn up that summons. What summons? For you to serve on a jury. Well, you can't tear those things up. If I get a jury notice, I have to report. Why? Why? Because that's the law. You can't tear up any court order. I tore up the traffic citation. 
What traffic citation? The traffic citation they gave me to go to court in front of the jury that you were supposed to serve on, but I tore up the notice. Oh, Blanche, Blanche, you'll, you'll have us both in jail. Well, that's where my brother Amos is. Amos? <laughs> what has he got to do with this? Well, I was taking a driving lesson. Oh, well, Blanche, I... no! Not my new car! It's never been out of the garage! Well, it's out now. I took a driving lesson and paid the instructor $5 an hour, and... Who and... was the instructor? It was Amos, wasn't it? It was. I know it was Amos. I never even took the wheel. Amos was driving, and we, were, we suddenly saw this other car careening toward us at 100 miles an hour. Yes. Amos didn't have much time, but by an amazing piece of quick thinking, he managed to meet him head on. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. It's a funny thing. Nobody got hurt. Not even the policeman. What policeman? In the other car. Now, now look, Blanche. Amos started to ball them out about driving in the wrong lane, and they had some silly excuse about a police car having the right of way. Blanche. And then Amos got mad and hit one of the cops with a wrench. Blanche, where is my car? It's on Hill Street between 5th and 8th. 5th and 8th? That's three blocks apart. That's where the car is. <laughs> about three blocks apart. Or it was. They took some of it away to the police pound. Some of it? But I don't care. I'm insured. I'm just happy they got that Amos in jail. They can't do anything to him. Oh, they can't, huh? That's reckless driving and resisting an officer. They can wrap him up good. They can't do a thing about his driving, and you know it, John. Why not? Because he doesn't have a license. <laughs> oh, 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 that's different. They'll only add another five years. I hope they give him life. John, why do you despise my poor brother so? Because I hate him. And don't you dare ask me to help him, Blanche. Well, the least you can do is help me. I have to go to court, too. Well, it serves you right. Go on, testify against me. Get me locked up in jail. Oh, nobody's going to lock you up in jail. Let them put me on bread and water. You won't feel so good when I lo- walk that last mile when they slip my pants leg. Blanche! Why don't you get me a reprieve, John? Oh, stop it! They're not going to do anything to you. Now go to sleep. Go to sleep, he tells me. My poor brother's in jail. My own husband's going to testify against me. Go to sleep. How can I sleep? I'll never... How can he be so heartless? Hello. Where's the phone, Blanche? I've got it. Hello? Blanche, this is Amos. I'm still in jail. Wait, Amos. I'll get John. Talk to him, John. Sure. Hello. Jocko? Drop dead. (laughs) Oh, listen, you got to come down and spring me. This is the first call they let me make. Drop dead. Don't be sorry, Jocko. I'm in an awful jam. I'm in a tank here with 50 other bums. Drop dead. But I got money enough to pay for all the damage. I think I even got enough for the bail bond. Get me out, will you, Jocko? Drop dead. I swear I'll pay you. I got plenty of dough. I I started the crab game here and won over $400. Drop $400. Amos, are you loaded? No, but the dice were. (laughs) Hey, come down and spring me, will you, Jocko? Well, I'm going to think about it, Amos. Right now, I'll leave you with two words. Yeah, well, what's that? Drop dead! <laughs> now I can sleep. Please, John, dear, get my brother out of jail. Well, I'll think about it. I'll do anything for you, John. Please bail him out. Bought me a shot of bourbon, Blanche. Are you sure you wouldn't like a double shot, dear? Just a single. Thanks. Ah, wonderful stuff. I promise I'll never wake you up again, darling. Will you forget all about Gloria Gooseby? Forever. Just get Amos out of that nasty jail. Well, we can't do anything about it until morning anyway. In the meantime, I think I'll get a good night's sleep. Certainly, dear. Are you comfortable? Perfect. Just perfect. Snore to me, John. (laughs) 
Stay tuned for Philip Marlowe next on Theater of the Mind. Time now for The Adventures of Philip Marlowe on Theater of the Mind. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gutter of the prison of the grave. This started with a wreck and went from there to double murder over 75,000 bucks worth of glitter that nobody got in the end. Because I found out just in time what was fishy about the tale of the mermaid. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Tale of the Mermaid. I was still in my office, tucking in the loose ends on a report, while I listened with half an ear to the fabric of city sounds rising from the street below. Fabric ripped suddenly by tires clawing concrete. A shattering crash that followed brought me to my feet. It was a traffic accident, and a bad one. I ran to the window, but it had happened around the corner out of sight from my office. So I watched others run for it and remembered grimly that every 30 seconds, somewhere in the country, a thing like that happened. And one out of every 16 minutes was fatal. I wondered who had been chewed up in a chromium meat grinder this time as I listened to first the police, then the emergency ambulance, and finally, the scavenger truck cleaned the wreck off the street. After that, I went back to my report again and tried to forget about it. But an hour later, that same accident came back into my office. Mr. Marlowe. Yeah? This is Corey Riggs. Uh, yes, Miss Riggs. I'm a nurse at the Warwick Emergency Hospital. Uh About an hour ago, a man named Stanley Ott was brought in, and he's been calling for you. For me? He was badly injured in an automobile accident on Coenga on his way to your office. Wait a minute. Who did you say this was? I'm the nurse assigned to Mr. Ott at the hospital. I just got off duty, and I had to wait until I was relieved before I could call you. I see. Well, look, Miss Riggs, I'd like to help in any way I can, but it's 9... Mr. Marlowe. Mr. Ott gave me $250 and told me to call you. Yeah, I know, but And he said that... I should give you 200 and keep the 50 for myself. Oh, fine. Now I get clients by proxy. I beg your pardon? Nothing. I'll be right over, Miss Riggs. I didn't know anyone named Stanley out, and I felt a little like an ambulance chaser, but I was only 15 minutes from getting to the emergency hospital. As I walked up the ambulance ramp, a smart-looking brunette came toward me. Mr. Mars? I'm Corey Riggs, the nurse who called. Oh, uh, Hello. Can I see him now? It wouldn't do any good. You see, um, he went into a coma a few minutes after I called you. Oh, too late, is that it? Let's move away from the door, shall we? Sure. You see, Mr. Marlowe, before he went into the coma, Art wasn't rational. He was raving. About what sort of thing? About you and a girl. Oh? As near as I could make out, she's supposed to meet someone tonight at 2 o'clock and collect $75,000. It's quite an assignment. Who's the girl? I don't know. All I said was something about a, a plaid coat as identification. Plaid coat, huh? Any idea what he wanted me to do? Chaperone, maybe? No, he, he kept pleading, stop her, stop her, she can't do it. So I'm sure that he wanted you to prevent this girl from keeping that appointment. For some reason, it seems absolutely imperative to him. Where was this two o'clock meeting supposed to take place? I have no idea. Oh, fine. So it boils down to this. 
A girl we don't know in a plaid coat is meeting someone we don't know at a place we don't know at 2 a.m. The man who wants me to prevent it is in a coma and can't talk. Can he say anything else, Miss Riggs? He just kept saying, you've got to help me, Marlowe. It's life and death. You know, we can stir up an awful hornet's nest poking our noses into 75000 bucks worth of business we know nothing about. I doubt that we can do any good anyway, because we don't have enough to go on. He said anything else to even point uh, in the right... Marlowe. What? Oh, wait a minute. He mumbled something once about a, a Constantine. Constantine? Yes, it's some here. What is it, a boat? I don't know. But at least it's a lead, isn't it? Mm. Anything else? No. Okay, where can I reach you? I'll be at my quarters. Press you 5781. 5781. And keep track of Stanley Art's condition, will you? If he comes out of it, talk to him. We've only got three short hours. I'll call you, Corey. I felt a little weird as I left the hospital because I was traveling on strictly second-hand information as to what had gone on in a delirious mind. But in spite of that, there was still enough coherence in what Corey Riggs told me to make a case. My first stop was a phone booth and a call to the police. But I found out from the accident report that Stanley Ock was 30, unmarried, small-time lawyer and an L.A. resident with a clean police record. My next call was the harbor master's office, San Pedro. Uh, Constantine? No. Don't remember no vessel by that name, son. Just a minute, I'll look her up in the registry. Uh, let's see. Constana, Constantine. Constantine. Only one listed is a four-masted schooner sunk off Pirates Point near Monterey in 1870. A little before my time. Not the one, eh? Not the one. So I tried the Coast Guard. No fishing boat called Constantine on this coast, mister. That was followed by a check of Yacht Harbor at Long Beach, negative. And a call of the pleasure boat anchorage at Santa Monica. After that, a long, futile reconnaissance of the waterfront from one end to the other. It left me one solid hour later out at the end of a tottering, almost abandoned concession pier in Venice. Swearing in blind frustration at the black, seething ocean below. I was licked. Ain't thinking of jumping in, are you, pal? Hey, you look like you lost your best friend. I did, Buster. Me. I was sunk with a Constantine in 1870. Constantine? Gee, you know him too, huh? Him? Yeah. You mean Constantine's a guy? Sure, pal. There's a shack there. Uh, wait till the beacon light comes around again. You see? See that? Well, I'll be. <laughs> Prince Constantine Chevnov. Hockelfist, promised, and medium, personal consultant by appointment only. Yeah, but uh, that's a fake. No fool. All them guys, uh, he owes everybody around, he, he, even as a ziggy, me. For one buck, and that's something. But he's a genuine Russian princess. Hey, 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 where are you going? Have a look. Prince Konstantin Chevnov could be my boy. He wouldn't want you nosing around here, pal. That's too bad. Does he live here? Yeah, in, in the back. He uh, runs his pitch in the front where uh, all them uh, uh, green curtains are. Right? Uh-huh. Yeah. I suppose he always leaves his door unlocked. Huh? What? What? Who? Hey, hey. That's kind of funny. Yeah, yeah, I'll bet. There'll be a light switch here someplace. Oh, yeah. Now let's see what... Oh. Oh, you catch. Uh, good 
cheap, gaudy carpet of the seance room. He was about 35 in a substantial gray business suit stained red in front where the bullets had gone in. His wallet was missing. There was no other identification on him. His gray snap rim hat was spilled a few feet away, so I picked it up to look for initials and found instead a small file card stuck into the sweatband. Typed at the top was the heading The Mermaid. Owner Otis Van Owen, only relative Evelyn Van Owen, niece. Mermaid stolen November 12th, 1948. Insurance paid in full. In ink, Van Owen died August 1949. And under that in pencil, Constantine Chevnov, Venice Pier, and Louis Paradise. 913 Seacrest Road, Pacific Palisades. It took 20 minutes to find 913 Seacrest. And when I stopped and got close enough from what I saw to an open window made Constantine trap I just left look as reliable as a post office by comparison. It was a miniature Egyptian temple, exotic and dainty, sickening lushness of red velvet and yellow silk. And in the center of the room was a bloated little man balancing a long cigarette holder in one hand while he simpered into a honey-colored French phone in the other. I moved up quietly until I could hear him. A sentimental agreement. That is right, Evelyn. Your Uncle Otis and I were the best of friends for years. Well, thank you, child. Where are you now? Oh, the servitor. Good, good. I advise you to stay there until a few minutes before two, and uh, you uh, will not forget to wear a plaid coat, just to be sure I won't make a mistake. What is it, buddy? What? Right, you. Careful now. That noise is like his gun going off a set, oh, Mr. Curtis. They find two interest inside. Oh, yeah. Conversation. About the mermaid, probably. Glad you dropped that one, bud, because I'd bump you for a nickel. Say nothing to 75G. I don't talk things over with punks. I reserve it for the head man. Go do something about it. Okay, bud, I will. Go on, move. Round to the door and inside. The paradise gets some kind of kick out of stepping on big guys like you. The gopher face shoved his automatic into the small of my back and marched me inside where the air was thick with cheap incense. The bloated little king with a long cigarette holder had stepped out. But he came back fast when the gopher called him. He stared at me from across the room and his nostrils flared for an instant. Then he simpered again and sidled toward me. The gopher dug at my spine with his gun. Well, now, what is this you did? Snubber, Mr. Paradise. Caught him outside, peeking in the window. Oh, it is a bad night for snoopers. Who are you? Name's Marlowe. And uh, the business? Snooping. He knows about the mermaid, Mr. Paradise. He does. How much do you know? Speak up. You've got a fishtail instead of legs. You dare to joke. Don't you. Stand here and take it, big man. You asked for it. Make a move and I'll drop you. I know what you are, Marlowe, but not how much you have found out. Now tell me, because the next time I slap you, it will carry more weight than my bare hand, I promise. You have company, Paradise. Should I get it? No, you keep this baboon under control, Rudy. I will answer the door. Come in. Paradise. Come in. Paradise, what do you mean? How far do you think you can go with my reputation? Do you want to get me hanged? Wife, what is the matter, Constantine? You are upset. Upset? I'm out of my mind. Oh, what a shock. 
and such a stupid thing for you to do. What are oh. you raving about? He found that body on his front room floor, right, Constantine? Exactly. Precisely. And what is more, I did not put it there. Of all the places in the world, why did you pick this one? Paradise, who is this? This stranger here? If you would close your mouth and open your eyes more often, Prince Constantine, you would not be the nervous wreck you are. This is Mr. Marlowe, another snooper. Oh, another one? Paradise. Paradise, listen to me. It's better if we quit. It's better if we don't try it tonight. It's out of hand. I don't like it now. We should get away and come back next year and do it. Ah, you jellyfish, there jellyfish. is nothing to worry about jellyfish. now. Insurance oh. investigators Why? often work oh. in pairs. Is that not so, Marlowe? Your pitch, round man. You don't need any help from me. You are so right. Rudy and I caught the first at your place, Constantine. Now we have the second one sure. here. That is all there are. The danger is over. It's over. clear ceiling for yeah, now. Yeah, but what about that cadaver you had the audacity to leave lying in my cell? Oh, room? What about give that? me, Constantine. Oh, that me, Constantine. was a necessity. Oh, I am sorry. Now, listen. Hey, Rudy. This go on all the time? Yeah. Ain't it awful? And think of all the champagne, caviar, and bricola, strong enough you can buy with the mermaid. I don't care. Just a bracelet. But at the same time, it is $75,000 worth of diamonds and platinum. Oh, dada. Oh. Okay, Paradise. I trust you. Now, we go, huh? My, uh, Gnaldo. Uh, yes, Gnaldo. Uh, it is. Uh, Mr. Paradise. Uh? What should I do with the big boy here? Yeah, you're kind of leaving a loose end around, aren't you, Fatty? If I had the time, Marlowe, I would beat the arrogance out of you a little chunk at a time. Rudy. Yeah? You've got no initiative, but you do have imagination. So use it. Goodbye, Marlowe. In just a moment, the second act of Philip Marlowe. But first, it's a big break in entertainment for you and a big break in a career for some talented youngsters when Horace Heights' original youth opportunity program opens the door to fame and fortune every Sunday evening on CBS. Popular Horace Heights is host to young folks who want to break into show business. And every Sunday evening, one lucky winner does break in to his delight and your listening pleasure. Yes, for music, comedy, thrills, and all-around fun, listen to Horace Heights Sunday evenings. Another great CBS show heard over most of these same stations. Tune in, tune in this fall for the shows that you love best of all. Listen carefully. Here's the address. It's CBS, CBS. Now with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Tale of the Mermaid. Paradise hesitated at the door, snarled the suggestion that this henchman used his imagination in disposing of me, and left in lockstep with the white Russian screwball, I got the point. But even if I'd missed it entirely, one look into Brother Rudy's eyes would have done the trick. There were no pupils, just slits of lethal viciousness. Windows to his warped little mind where I could practically see the montage going on. It ran from ancient thumbscrews by candlelight up to a generous beating by street lamp with brass knucks. <laughs> Cold knot grow in the pit of my stomach. As Rudy, with a cannon in his hand, pointed at my head, started toward me. 
And from someplace outside, I got a break. Two romantic cats. Rudy spun toward the sound. One chance to a customer, Rudy, and you miss. Kill you, man, or I'll blow your head off. Not tonight, gentle soul. Give it to me. I don't want you to hurt yourself until we've had a chance to talk. That's it. Now lie down. I know there was some reason why I like cats, their voices. Okay, Rudy, you've had enough rest. Now let's get back to business. Now, now wait a minute. Come on, get up. We're going to talk. Wait, hold it, please. No reason for any more rough stuff. I'll cooperate. That's better. Where did Paradise and his highness head for? The Gnaz, though, where is it? I don't know. Come on, you said there was no reason for rough stuff, remember? Ow! Yeah, yeah, I remember. That Gnaz, though, that's something I never heard of. An unhappy coincidence, Rudy. It's one thing I'm interested in. Yeah, wait. Must be something else you want to know. Something else I could tell you that... Hey, hey, what are you going to do? You mean you Stay can't away. tell, Rudy? That's Keep funny. Away. All it, it takes is a little imagination. started through the place looking for all important answer to what was the Gnaz, though. The 20 minutes of turning drawers and closets inside out revealed nothing more exciting than Louis Paradise's address book, first names only, and a picture of a girl named Toodles who belonged to the Roaring Twenties, and by this time should have caught a death of cold. <laughs> His sister, no doubt. But no lead on the Gnaz, though. So on the slim chance that my client Stanley Ott might already be back in this world and able to help I got outside into my car and drove to the first drugstore where after checking the phone books under everything from bars to bathhouses for a Gnazdo and getting no place, I called Corey Riggs at the nurse's home. No, Marlowe. Stanley no. Art's still unconscious. I just talked to the night nurse on his floor. They expect him to come out of it soon. Uh, why? What happened? Well, it's too much to explain now, Corey, but that girl, the one in the plaid coat, mm-hmm. I found out that her name's Evelyn Van Owen and she's staying at the Surf Hotel. Now, see if that much checks with Art when he comes to, will you? All right. Oh, also, there's a diamond-studded item called the mermaid, which accounts for that 75000 he mentioned. Now, Constantine and the pier now equal a phony Russian prince who runs a spook palace out on the old Venice pier. Now, you got all that? Uh-huh. Good. Now, look, honey, listen real hard. Before Art passed out, did he by any chance say the word Ganazdo? Ganazdo? Yeah. No, what does it mean? I don't know. I, I think it's the name of a place. Oh, have you uh, checked the phone books? Yeah, yeah. It's no dice, Corey. Also, I checked one Mr. Louis Paradise, so you might uh, mention... Marlo, Marlo, wait a minute. What's Hold the matter? Wire, will you? There's a girl here, one of the nurses, who's trying to tell me something. Oh. It's the Ganazdo, Marlo. Shh, wait a minute. She knows something about it here. It's, it's Rosemary. You talk to her. Hello. Hello. You want to know what Gnazdo means? Yeah. Well, it's Russian, like Parshlemaya Gnazdo. Oh, uh, well, what does it mean in English, Rosemary? Fast, please, it's important. Well, that means, let's go to my place. Gnazdo's the word for nest. Sort of like cozy apartment or cottage. My place? Nest? You sure of that? Well, I'm positive. I was an army nurse in the war, and I spent two years in Germany after the shooting part was over. Two years, a half a block away from the Russian zone. That's close enough. Thanks a million, Rosemary. I don't mention it. Here's Corey. Oh. That do it, Marlowe? Yeah, I think so. At any rate, unless I'm way off base, it's where both the mermaid and all parties concerned are going to rendezvous at 2 a.m. That's less than a half hour from now. The prince's place on the pier. I want to be early, so goodbye, Corey. I'll call again when I know more. Yeah, and give my everlasting love to girlfriend Rosemary. She all is show a peace. Oh, my God.
still a few parts missing, the way there always are. But as I drove fast for the old Venice Pier and added as I went along, it came out something like the theme of paradise and Prince Whatchamacallit, ready, willing, and able to pay 75 grand for a piece of jewelry that one Evelyn Van Owen now owned. A mermaid, which according to the data I'd found on the insurance man's body, had once been stolen from Evelyn's late uncle. But I left it there when my rearview mirror said a long gray sedan that had been tagging me discreetly for the last three blocks. Now being indelicate about it, had been closing fast. The driver was old pal Rudy, and as he came abreast, he headed for me. You're okay. You're okay, Mac. Don't you worry about a thing. We'll have you out of there in a minute. Ed. Hey, can't you knock out that horn? I knocked out the horn. What do you think we're trying to I do? Mean it ain't so easy getting my hand past the twisted hood. Hello. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Well, that's better. Hey. Hey, cabbie, what'd I hit? Well, in order of their appearance, Ooh. Mac, your car into a telephone pole, and then you into your dashboard. Oh, yeah, you're sure lucky you bounced off the car first, Mr. Okay. Slowed you down plenty. Oh, hey, here comes the argument. Yeah. Look at the roll. Not for me. I'm all right. Hey, come on, cabbie, help me out of this, will you? Sure, sure, that's what we're trying to do, but uh, don't you worry, the ambulance ain't for you. For the guy that sideswiped you and then tried to get away. I seen what happened, and I went after him in my cab. <laughs> he turned into a dead end, no less, trying to shake me. Ooh, is he a mess. But I guess he'll live all right. Hey, what you got against you, anyhow, Mac? Just my life. Listen, your cab's still all right? Sure, there's some place you got to go. There is. The old Venice Concessions Pier, my friend, and the sooner the better. Come on. <laughs> My head against the dashboard was exactly what I needed. Because right then and there, the method of Rudy's handiwork made me think of an angle that I'd neglected almost completely. My unconscious client had not wanted me to get the mermaid or the 75,000 bucks, but to stop Evelyn from keeping her rendezvous, which at this point I figured could mean but one thing. It was exactly two o'clock when the cab slammed to a stop near the pier. And I piled out and ran onto the empty, fog-dampened planking that led to Prince Constantine's shack. Nothing but mist moved over the pier. No unusual sound broke the pattern of waterfront noises. And I thought momentarily that I was still in time to prevent what Stanley out somehow knew was going to happen. That Louis Paradise and his eccentric sidekick intended to get the mermaid from Evelyn. But pay off in only one... One way. I ran to the rear of the shack on stilts and got close to the half-open door where I could see and hear and found out just what I'd expected. In the storeroom spread out and very still on the oil-soaked planks that were a makeshift floor with a lifeless form. A girl. Who, according to the plaid coat she wore, was the late Evelyn Van Orn. And kneeling close to a gun in one hand, the sparkling mermaid in the other, was her execution on Louis Paradise. Next to him is number one boy, Prince Constantine Chevnov. Not very happy. A fool to shoot her was stupid. Yes. Seventy-five grand, stupid. Or would you have preferred that I pay Miss Van Owen in cash? I had to kill her. Yes, 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 Paradise, but the gun, so much noise, we can't afford to attract that man. If two cops is on hand, I should say not, Chris. They don't try it, Louis. Oh, the mermaid. The space between the boards. The mermaid. Oh. In the water, Chevnov. Shame. Yeah. Yes, it's a shame, we did so much. 
worked so hard. Yeah, killed so often. And a run for it, Your Highness? Run? Nah. Nah, paradise is dead here. Without paradise, I... I am not so brave. I will do as you say. Keep quiet. Don't make a sound, Chef. No, we got company. Routine quiet! Pardon me. Can you please tell me where Louis Paradise can be found? It's Louis Paradise there. Who are you? Evelyn Van Owen. What? Van Owen? Oh. A woman who was supposed to sell the mermaid to Paradise? That's right. But on my way over here, just after I left my hotel, somebody struck me, knocked me out. Took my, my coat there and, and my purse and ran. Your purse with a mermaid, no doubt. Yes. And that, Miss Van Owen, makes this angle shooter here. Yeah. The very dead nurse, Corey Riggs. <laughs> Let's get out of here. Don't worry about Miss Van Owen. Stanley's going to be all right. Oh, I'm so happy. <laughs> Why is it women always cry when they're so happy? I don't know, but it's effective. Well, I'll run along now. Goodbye. Bye, Doctor. You know, Mr. Marlowe, when I was in Stanley's room with the doctor, Stan said he didn't lose control of his car at all when he had that accident in front of your place. He was run off the road by... By a great sedan, I know. Because I had the same treatment. One of Louis Paradise's henchmen, Rudy. Where's your car, honey? I'll walk you out. Just outside the front door. Mm-hmm. Tell me, did I tell you why Rudy roughed him up? Yes, in a way. You see, I told Stanley about the deal with the mermaid, and he thought it all sounded a little phony. Can't understand why. He's a lawyer, you know. Not a legal type mind. Uh, yeah. He said meeting anyone at two in the morning was ridiculous, so he investigated as much as he could. Because he was worried about me. We're engaged, you No, know. I never would have guessed. And, and he found out that Mr. Paradise was a fence. And Stan said that probably he never intended to give me the $75,000 for the mermaid at all. That they, they intended to kill me. Mm, here we are. Tell me, why did you get in touch with Paradise in the first place? I was just following Uncle Otis's instructions. Mm-hmm. He gave me the mermaid when he was dying. And he told me if I wanted money to sell it only to a Mr. Paradise, but but not to mention it to anyone. Your uncle faked a robbery, collected the insurance money, and then let you sell the mermaid to a fence, huh? It's lucky for you that Nurse Corey Riggs was clever. She put together just enough of Otis's gibberish to know that there was something good to be had and then got me to unravel it for her. She got killed taking my place. When she tried to collect your 75,000 bucks. Yeah. Oh, here's my car. Well, Evelyn, a little while you were a rich woman. Now it's all gone. How do you feel? I'm alive. And love. Yes, well, that answers my question. Good night, baby. And good luck. When I left the hospital, I wandered back to the old Venice Pier in Prince Constantine's Gnazdo. It was five in the morning and the police had finished cleaning the place up. But the word had gotten out. A crowd had gathered. They always do. Curious, restless, sordid crowd. Equipped with everything from grappling hooks to homemade diving helmets. 
all climbing over each other for a chance to fish for the mermaid. She would brought death to three people, injury to two others in the course of one night. And suppose they found her. What then? A lot of glittering pieces of white coal set in a metal frame we call precious. <laughs> Look at the suckers, Grand. That's all, Marlowe. Home and to bed. <laughs> Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character, star Gerald Moore, and are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Mel Donnelly, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Rita Lynn, John Daner, Michael Ann Barrett, Wilms Herbert, Junius Matthews, Herb Vigran, and Mark Lauren. The special music is composed and conducted by Richard Orant. <laughs> Be sure and be with us next week when Philip Marlowe says... It started with a terrified woman lost in a maze of memories she couldn't explain. And waiting for outside an open window was death. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night is Jack Benny, followed by The Lone Ranger. Thanks to Joel Schoenwell and Paul Stringer for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.